sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Our guest today is an old friend and a, uh, a former guest. Years ago, Brad Newton served in the Church State Council and was my friend and companion in religious liberty ministry and has gone on to, dare I say, bigger and better things. It serves now as Executive Secretary for the Seventh-day Adventist Church Administration, serving a Southwest Territory known as the Pacific Union Conference. And and I've asked Brad to record a couple of discussions about a groundbreaking new statement that the Seventh-day Adventist Church here in the Southwest voted on social justice. So, Brad, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Alan, it's wonderful to be with you. We're doing it with some new technology that we didn't have back in the day. That is certainly true. Well, this is the start of year 23 of Freedom's Ring. And well, congratulations for that. That's a great accomplishment. Well, you know, we just keep showing up and we don't seem to run out of things to talk about. Oh, absolutely not. Religious freedom and church-state issues and, you know, how churches approach politics, how we approach our role in society. These are really at the core of church-state issues. And you know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a pretty conservative Protestant denomination, doctrinally, socially, and yet the term social justice is associated with much more progressive forms of, of Christianity. Give us a little bit of the backstory. What prompted this statement on social justice? And then we'll get into the statement itself. Sure. Well, you know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has had a stream of social consciousness and awareness, and of course, the Church State Council was a part of that through religious liberty ministry. But uh, I think the catalyst really came with the administration leadership with Dr. Ricardo Graham, our president, in the events that happened, particularly with the death of George Floyd. And as we began to see the continued heightened awareness in our society of the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, responses of individuals really on both sides of issues. We actually uh, published a, a very, I think, great issue in the Pacific Union Recorder that had a number of key articles. Uh, Dr. Graham wrote some, I wrote some, some others. We had a religious, we had a roundtable discussion back in May with our leadership here. And really what happened is all of this began to coalesce the thinking to the place that we thought there needs to be something said from us as a leadership and as our um, administrative leadership through our union committee, which is our highest authority here in the Pacific Union, who I work for, that uh, we needed to have something to say. And it needed to be more than just a public relations statement or a statement about a particular news issue, which is often what we do is we respond to a news story, want to have some voice in that. This goes beyond that. This became a principled statement based on the circumstances. Well, it's, it's really a theological statement, isn't it? Very much. That's how we framed it, because this was not uh, to be a political statement. Uh, this was not to be a statement about progressive politics or conservative politics. 
It was to speak to around the core of what Seventh-day Adventists proclaim themselves to be. And I think, you know, as we take a closer look at the statement, I think what we're going to see theologically is how God expresses his concern for society and how this informs how we as a church body relate to injustice in society. I think that's really the core issue and why I wanted to make sure we had more than just one short segment to discuss it. So there's eight sentences, I think. Why don't we take it uh, one by one? That's a good way to do it. I've said to some that, because uh, I'm a pastor and a minister, and uh, I thought this is really an eight-part sermon series. It's an eight-chapter book, because each of these sentences can be explored uh, quite thoroughly. So I'm happy to have us do a little bit of that now. Well, okay. Start with the first sentence, if you would. Well, if your listeners and viewers are able to access the uh, statement, they can, they'll can they see the whole thing as a progressive, and I say progressive not politically, but progressive in thought and narrative, that this actually flows somewhat chronologically, scripturally, because it begins with the phrase, every human life is sacred. I thought you were going to direct people to the website, AdventistFaith.com. Well, good. You just did that. And you can look at a particular part of the website called Let Justice Roll. And it has a number of other materials. It has actually, the statement has been put into a production value kind of presentation, which I think is very engaging. But you can find the basic text as well. So it begins with the, you know, very provocative uh, proposition that every human life is sacred. And uh, certainly uh, that's something that is not controversial among Christians, but that is the starting point. It is the starting point, because if you frame it with the beginning, that every human life is sacred, then you ask the question, so what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. And this actually, since this is a bit of a church-state political show in some ways, this also sets us apart from looking at this as just a a political statement, a secular statement. This is going to be framed in theological terms, which I think in so many ways has been missing from the conversation. So I'll read the second one. Yes. Created in the image of God, all people are bestowed dignity, worth, and endless opportunity. I get the dignity and the worth part. I'm not sure where the endless opportunity part came from. And I'm sure, you know, there are those who are going to quibble around the edges about the language, but um, surely... Let me put it this way. At the creation story, I always have my Bible at hand here, and I'm not going to get it out and preach to you. But ask, you know, I think uh, listeners and viewers and the two of us need to ask the question, when God created us, were we created with the possibility of endless opportunity for growth? I think the answer is yes. Fair enough. Uh, Adam and Eve were created. They were created sinless and perfect in our theology, but they were not created to not grow. And when we talk about endless opportunity, um, opportunity can be uh, hijacked in political sense again. But I'm looking at this, and we're looking at this word in the sense that God gives us the uh, boundless bestowal of the capacity for growth. And we believe that that growth goes on not only here on Earth, but in the new life to come. So let's go on, and if you would, read the next sentence. Sure, and I have it right here in front of me. Human societies ideally exemplify equality, fairness, 
respect, and freedom for every person. So that's the ideal. Yes, it is. And it's important to have the ideal in front of us because it's too easy to say that we're off the hook as human beings, that, uh, well, we're living in a broken world, so we don't have to try or we don't have to strive as a group of people in a community to try to do better. We believe that as we look at Scripture, that, uh, and certainly as you go back and read the Old Testament, and you see, for instance, the way the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy created the sense of what the community of Israel was going to be. Obviously, that was framed in a time of barbarism often, but God had a higher ideal. And then we come to the New Testament. You cannot read the Sermon on the Mount and think that, well, this is only for the church. No, it is well beyond that. And it tells us that this is part of what Jesus' ideal is. And we believe that that, because human beings make up society, and that we're voters, and that we are people that have choice, we need to strive for these things as much as we can. And I can see, you know, this um, this statement about the ideal of equality, fairness, respect, freedom. These are going to kind of set the direction for um, where the statement is going in terms of how the church engages with society in pursuing justice, you know, freedom and justice for all. Yes, that's true. But as you see, this is these first three sentences are the predicates for where we go next, because we begin to move towards the pivot of the statement um, with the next sentence. You know, I'm struck here with how broad a foundation theologically this is creating. And I want to just contrast for a moment the difference between Roman Catholic and conservative evangelical Protestant approaches to policy and to politics. Because, you know, I've been doing this a long time, as you know, Brad, um, and what I've observed, and I'm not sure that most Americans get this, but Roman Catholicism has a very broad kind of uh, social agenda. It's not just about abortion. It's also very much about um, caring for the poor, dealing with poverty issues, dealing with social injustice issues. Obviously, they have a very large Catholic Charities organization and anti-poverty work, but it's a broad agenda. The Protestant evangelical agenda tends to be more narrowly focused on a couple of hot-button social political issues, abortion, um, marriage and family, gay rights, and that sort of thing, um, but is, is far narrower in its scope. And what I see this statement starting to lay the foundation for is a very broad theological concept of, you know, what is justice in a society going to look like? What is freedom going to look like? Uh, what is equality, fairness, respect going to look like for everyone? Yes, I think that's true. And I think that if you build on a foundation that the statement begins with, then we move to the next sentence. And would you like me to read that? Please. So uh, this is the important beginning of opening the door to where we are. Sin's curse distorts and corrupts both individuals and societies. Yep, the view... That's about the size of it, Brad. It is. And here's the key that we saw in looking at this. We spend a lot of time, uh, Christians, uh, Bible-believing Christians, uh, speaking on the individual. 
uh, the corruption of sin. Uh, the Bible is very clear on this. But when you realize, of course, that human beings who are broken and sinful also make up society, that we also look at the fact that the distortion and corruption that comes to human beings also can come to society and also does. I mean, it just is an historical reality. So that begins to ask us the question, so what do we do about it? What's our answer? You know, we're only going to get about halfway through the statement yeah. in segment one, uh, keeping an eye on the clock. You know, it, it strikes me looking at this that when historically, when the church puts its emphasis on seeking political power, it tends to forfeit that prophetic and moral function of really calling the entire society to a higher standard, moral standard, standard of justice, etc. But that is really at the core is not just what the values are, but how we as a church seek to implement this vision in society. Yeah, that's very true. And when we come to the next statement, it, it takes it even further in the next sentence in the statement. It says, even when unrecognized, and that word, by the way, is very important, even when unrecognized, to dominate or marginalize others, dominate or marginalize, is rooted in selfishness and greed that produces racism, discrimination, and injustice. We chose those words very carefully. We're going to have to pick that discussion up in segment two. So I hope, listeners, you will tune in again or check us out on iTunes or SoundCloud where you can listen to both, you know, one after the other. And as we close, remember, friends, even the coronavirus won't slow down our efforts to protect your religious freedom. We don't just talk about it. We provide legal services to those suffering religious discrimination, especially in the workplace. So check us out at churchstate.org, churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rynock. Till next week, keep freedom ringing.